A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Stop. Kiyotamai and welcome to our changing world. Ko Alison Balanceho. Later on, we'll be hearing from a scientist who's concerned about the impact of a proposed restructure on the natural history collections at Te Papa. But first up, research collections are an amazing thing. They are to bones, shells, and feathers what books are to a library. And they're irreplaceable books that can be hundreds or even millions of years old. And they can end up providing information in unexpected ways. DNA from fossil bones has been shedding some new light on the prehistory and early human history of New Zealand. To date, much of what we know about the species that used to live here and how they've been affected by 750 years of human settlement comes from well preserved fossil bones. But zoologists collecting from prehistoric sites and archaeologists working in Māori middens always collect and keep everything, big and small. And it's those small bits and pieces that are turning out to be surprisingly valuable. I'm off to the University of Otago to meet ancient DNA specialist Nick Rawlins and archaeologist Richard Walter. We're in the advanced laboratory in the Department of Anthropology and Archaeology and Richard tells me what normally happens here. What happens is we come back from the field with bags and bags of archaeological material. We tip it all out on these desks and then we sort everything. So we take out the shell, we take out the bone. Then the bone we sort it out into mammal bone, bird bone, fish bone. Then once we've done that we take all those fragments and we sort them out to element. So with the fish, we take out the dentaries, the maxillas, the premaxillas, the parasphenoids, etc. And then we go onto these, all of these um, shelves that you can see behind you, these little drawers and boxes, and then we pull open the drawers and we match them. For example, if I have a, a bone, um, a fish bone, say, from here, and it's a um, premaxilla, and I can take it over here, and you see all of these are premaxillas all along here. So you'd pull out the drawers? So I'd pull out the drawer and I'd find the premaxilla that matches. And that's the right, a left premaxilla of a soldier fish from uh, the Cook Islands. So traditionally that's what you've done? Yeah. And the technology is changing? The technology is changing, that's right. It's becoming simpler and it's becoming cheaper. So enter Nick, yep. where your interest is in the DNA that these artefacts might contain? Yeah, so my job here, my research here, is I reconstruct what New Zealand used to be like when Polynesians arrived and look at the impacts that they had, how their behaviours and diet changed over time and then take that information for smart conservation or smart restoration of um, how to conserve what we've got left. Great, well let's have a look. You've pulled some things up for me to have a look at on the table. Um, talk me through what we've got there, Richard. OK, this is an archaeological site that we excavated in the Bay of Islands about a year and a half ago. Now, all of the material has been sorted and all of the identifiable material has been taken out and what we have left are these big bags, these trays full of tiny little unidentifiable fragments. Now, normally when we're excavating a midden site and we pull out the bones, 
This is, this is food remains, of course. About 90% of the material is fragmented, smashed up and unidentifiable. At least it was. But now, you kept it anyway. We kept, oh, yeah, we, <laughs> we don't throw anything away. We, we wash, we store, we label everything properly and we keep everything, just in case something can happen in the future. For example, in the 1970s, we excavated the nests from mowers. Okay, and they, basically they contained mower shit. So this is, of course, exactly the sort of stuff that Nick loves. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a treasure chest. So I look at that and I see rubble. I can see something that might be a bit of a bone. There's nothing there that's really identifying itself to me. No, there are, well, I, can, I, I can see elements in here. I can see vertebrae. I can see bits and pieces of fin bones from, from fish. And I can see some crab bits and pieces. But I can't tell you what species they are. Not by looking at them, not by comparing them to our reference collections. Okay, so they remain for you unidentifiable. When you look at that, what do you see, Nick? I see a genetic treasure chest. We can go, well, we know there's fish there, some of it like the um, fragments we've got from an early Maori site, Awamoa, just south of Omaru. We can't tell. I suspect there's bits of marine mammal in there, but a lot of it's burnt, it's just unidentifiable bits of bone. But what we can go and do now is we can take two, three hundred random pieces of this bone. We can grind it up into um, just a pile of bone powder, extract the DNA out of it so we get this DNA soup, and then using the same environmental DNA technology that Neil Gimmel is using to characterise Watson Loch Ness, is we can photocopy up a genetic barcode that will identify all of the animals in this pile of fragments. And then we can take that sequence, compare it against databases, and basically provide all of this detail and nuance to the picture of prehistoric New Zealand. So when we've just had identifiable bones like this mower femur from a heavy-footed mower... Which is a very big, chunky bone, I Very big, say. chunky bone. They, they preserve well. It, it's like a paint-by-numbers version of the Sistine Chapel ceiling that's not coloured in. We've got the broad picture, but we're lacking all the details. And all of the genetic signatures and details we get from these trays of fragments actually start bringing in all of those details and make the picture what you actually see today. Now, can you just explain eDNA a bit more for me? So Neil Gemmell is looking, supposedly, for the Loch Ness Monster. What he's doing is he's not expecting to find one, but he's going to go and, what, essentially take some water out of Loch Ness and see what's left traces of DNA yeah. in there? So with Loch Ness, you're trying to extract all the DNA out of water samples, and most of the DNA will be made up of detritus, faeces, poos, weeds from all the animals that live in the lake. In this case, we're wanting to get all the DNA from all of the bone fragments. And so we have these genetic barcodes that are very, very variable across lots and lots of different um, species of animals, and when we compare them to databases, we can actually start pinpointing what we are finding. But our identifications are only as good as the database. So in quite a few examples we've come up with, well, we think it's an eagle, but we don't have a Haas eagle extract, so we've gone and got a Haas eagle extract, or we think we've found the first ancient DNA sequences of New Zealand's extinct frog, so we have to go get an extinct frog bone, extract DNA, and then put that into the database so we can start matching up. So in this recent study you've done, which is very exciting, we'll get to it a bit more, you've got some samples from archaeological yep. sites and then some that predate humans arriving in New Zealand. Yeah, so we've got samples spanning 20,000 years of New Zealand history, mixture of pre-human sites, mostly cave sites, sand dune sites, and then we've got what we call frag bags, these, these trays of fragments from a mixture of early Māori and late Māori um, archaeological middens.
And what did you find? Quite a few surprising things, actually. We've got the first ancient DNA sequences of New Zealand's lost frogs, the extinct Markham's frog that's showing a lot of geographic structure across New Zealand and cryptic species that we're investigating further. Kākāpō was one of the big surprises. We know Kākāpō's in all of these fossil sites, but we'd never actually found Kākāpō and Kia in midden deposits before. They may have been hunted for the feathers, but we don't usually find the bones in the archaeological sites. And there's other species too that we're finding in the midden sites that we're not normally finding um, just through the normal archaeozoological methods. For example, eel is showing up. Now, we know that people ate eel across the country. It was a very important food source in historic period, as it is today. But we almost never find eel in archaeological sites because it's so fragile. So it's really nice to be picking this up. Um, Other ones, of course, are whale. You wouldn't expect to find whale in middens because people don't drag the bones around. If whales are stranded on the beach, they'll be taking the meat off. But we're getting whale DNA in the sites. Now, we don't know if this is coming in in bone or if it's actually coming in through the meat itself. When discard into the midden, the DNA is permeating the other substrates. What species of whale did you find? Southern right whale, pygmy, fin whale, Cuvier's beaked whale, killer whale, dolphins, and other research we're doing on uh, cetacean whale dolphin resource used by Maori. We're finding um, fin whale, um, strap-toothed beaked whale, and we've actually now got the first um, record of a pilot whale, which is this really interesting thing, is if you go to the archaeological record, pilot whale is being identified, in quotation marks, throughout the record. Yeah, and we've never found sites. it in these frag bags, and we've now got one record from Washpool Midden. And so it, it's looking like the identifications that have been done have been purely based on size, and that if you're large, you're a whale, if you're small, you're a dolphin even if you are a whale. So we've, we've got bones that have been identified as dolphin and they've come up as a beaked whale. But we also are beginning to think that a lot of the identifications are based on people's preconceptions of what strains today. So if you're a medium-sized whale, you can't identify, be identified as anything else, then you're a pilot whale. Were there other marine mammals in the record as well? We've always known there's fur seals, the, what we're calling the true New Zealand sea lion, the prehistoric lineage in the record, um, elephant seals, but it was always thought that fur seals were always more important in the diet than sea lions and elephant seals. And what the bone grab is showing us is actually you are finding elephant seals and sea lions in same proportion, same abundances. The fur seals suggesting they're as, as important as each other in the diet. That's possible, Nick, but the the problem is, and this is one that we're all well aware of, is that the difference between doing this methodology and the traditional methodology is that the traditional methodology, can, you can actually do quantification and you can make very, very clear um, assumptions about the relative proportion of things in the diet. And that's because we can eliminate doubles. If, if you have a, a dead seal and you have, say, 30 bones, we can um, eliminate the possibility of counting that as 30 seals. But you can't do that with the DNA. So twice as much seal DNA as sea lion DNA doesn't mean twice as much seal. So what does this add to our picture of how we understand 
the native fauna of New Zealand responded to human settlement. So the first people rocked up about 750 years ago. We've always thought they had an impact. Does this change our understanding of what we think that impact was? Well, I think some of the work that Nick and the zoology team have been doing is is clearer on this. I mean, what we see archaeologically, we see a much bigger picture. We're not seeing the fine detail. What um, Nick's team is doing is they're, they're able to tell us that certain subspecies are being moved around in different ways and being replaced by other species or subspecies. What we see is a very sudden impact on, the, on a certain range of faunas. You know, within about 100 years, there's been huge depression of faunas across New Zealand, particularly visible in the south where we have the large moa hunting sites sea lions, seals, moa, etc., and a number of the forest and seabirds. Nick's team is able to, using the DNA, get a much finer-grained look at that picture. One of the things we found with the bone grabbers, there are ten lineages of kākāpō in New Zealand when Polynesians arrived. There was a North Island kākāpō that's genetically distinct to the South Island kākāpō. We don't know whether that's a different species or a different subspecies. We need to do more work, but what we see is a large loss in genetic diversity in kākāpō when uh, Polynesians arrive. The North Island kākāpō goes extinct, the South Island kākāpō gets hammered, and then it's hit by the double whammy with Europeans turning up. And so what you've gone is from about 10 lineages down to one. So you've gone from the equivalent of the genetic variation of Dunedin to the variation of the English royal family, completely inbred. And this is really interesting because that's precisely the sort of thing that the archaeologists wouldn't pick up. We cannot pick up that very, very fine detail. What other extinct species were you finding? You've mentioned a frog. Uh, you've talked about a North Island lineage of kākāpō. What else did you find? So we've found tuatara. We've got skinks and geckos. With the birds, we're picking up a lot of the small birds that don't preserve in the sites, like us, um, small perching birds. One of the cool things um, with the fishes, we're finding out that Māori fished locally. So the local fish and chip shop was quite important. Uh, much like the fish and chip shop they have in Ravensbourne here, sources all of its fish locally. You, you wouldn't go down the road to the other town um, to their fish and chip shop. We're also picking up shark, and with the eels that Richard was talking about before, not only are we picking up the freshwater species, but we're actually picking up marine species as well. Here's the picture we get from the archaeological record. In New Zealand, if you're down here in the south, and you're looking at a midden assemblage, 99% of what you get is going to be red cod and barracuda because red cod and barracuda are everywhere. It doesn't matter where you are, it doesn't matter how good you are at fishing, you can always get red cod and barracuda. So if you pick up a handful of midden from any site on the east coast of the South Island, it's going to be mostly red cod and barracuda. But there is going to be a very small proportion of other stuff, and that's that stuff that's that's going to tell us the really important picture. Now we can pick up, we're we're getting a lot better at the way in which we identify bones now. We can uh, identify many, many more bones and many more elements now than we could in the past. But with this DNA uh, method, we're picking up that 0.1%, the stuff that's really different. And that's telling us about this really subtle local differences that Nick was talking about. Like you can go to any fish and chip shop in New Zealand and get lemon fish, right, battered. But you really have to go to Ravensbourne to get that high-quality blue cod. And so we're picking up that local twist, you know? Now, you talked before about having to have a known DNA sequence to match against. I'm wondering how many 
unmatchable DNA sequences you might have ended up with that could be entirely new things? We have quite a few. One of the things that we've got is an unknown crane. Now, we don't have cranes in New Zealand, but the, the DNA sequence that of the, the unknown crane that we got from um, these frag bags, that is the best match we could find on the database. And so it doesn't mean it's a crane. One of the things we're finding is that all the research that we're doing and um, other ancient DNA labs are doing is we're starting to get DNA sequences from all of the New Zealand b- uh, birds, um, the extinct ones that haven't haven't been sequenced. And so you could take the data that we've produced in this study and in five, ten years' time, compare it to the database again, and you'd start filling in even more and more details. I really think that our teams have to work much more closely mm. together in the future. I think there's huge opportunities. Mm. If we understand each other's research directions, paradigms a bit more closely. I think we've got all sorts of directions we can move in. Ancient DNA is but one tool in the toolbox that we use to reconstruct New Zealand and what it used to be like. And if you do any of these one tools in isolation, you're not going to get the whole picture. And the prime example I can think of is work we did on the Chatham Island sea line, where we did the ancient DNA on the bones, then we used the, the genetic variation we found to reconstruct population size, and then we could do some modelling that, based on this population size of sea lines, the known extinction window, estimates of human population growth, we could work out how many sea lines would you have to hunt to cause the extinction of them. And it turns out it's very little. It's about half a sea line per person per year. Now, when you take that into account and then go with archaeologists to look at the bones that have been found in the midden deposits, you find the entire size range from small pups to the females and the giant, uh, giant males, but you don't find many individuals at all. Yeah. And it's, you yeah. don't, it shows you don't actually need to hunt that many individuals to yeah. cause extinctions, but it... It's also the DNA's matching what we find in the archaeological record. That's fascinating because if you take the New Zealand archaeological sequence, you know, if you look at the archaeological record of New Zealand, East Coast, South Island again especially, and you didn't know anything about New Zealand, you would know that there was a major extinction event here, and that was the extinction of moas. But if you look at the sea mammal record, you wouldn't have a clue. There is nothing in the archaeology that suggests Maori were predating sea lion or seals, fur seals, at anything other than a very low rate. Yet we know that they were wiped out across much of the country, or, or um, extirpated anyway. You just, you just can't pick that up from the archaeology. We only know it because there's no seals here now. Yeah. Uh, we, we find it with uh, the marine mammals and we find it with a lot of the birds, like the black swan, um, is that a lot of New Zealand birds, um, if I use the black swan, as, uh, the poa as an example, is they're, they're large, they're slow breeding, what we call case selected, they take a long time to re- get to maturity. And you won't find many individuals in, in middens, but across the Chatham Islands, across mainland New Zealand, is that they all go extinct at a time of stable climate. So we, we know the extinctions have to be down to humans. And the research we're doing time and time again has just shown all you have to do is hunt enough that your mortality um, basically outweighs your replacement or reproduction. As soon as that happens, um, you're going to go into an extinction vortex. And that's right. And with MOA, we know that. But we don't actually know, coming back to the archaeological side, we don't ha- actually know how humans did that. We don't know physically how people hunted moa in New Zealand. We know they had a massive impact on them, but there's nothing in the archaeology so far that's telling us how they did it. There's no um, tools for hunting moa. 
there, there's no evidence anywhere that dogs were used. There is no evidence in New Zealand for mass killing. This is a research that I'm involved in at the moment. It's just taking those dynamics that Nick's talking about, those population dynamics, and trying to turn it into human behaviour. How did Māori send Māori extinct? It's not simple. Thanks, Richard. That's Richard Walter from the Department of Anthropology and Archaeology at the University of Otago, and we also heard from Nick Rawlins, who is in the Zoology Department. Kei te whakaronga mai, koe ki tō tātou au horihori, hei hōtaka e pāna ki te pūtaio, te taio, me te kaupapa o te ora. You're with Our Changing World on RNZ National. I'm Alison Balance, and now... Biological collections are a treasure trove of information about our natural world. There are 29 major taxonomic collections in New Zealand held in various institutions. Together, they contain over 12 million specimen lots, and some of those lots contain many, many individual items, from vertebrates, invertebrates, plants, fungi, microorganisms, to fossils. In late 2015, the Royal Society Te Aparangi produced a report on national taxonomic collections in New Zealand, which raised concerns about their uncertain future. They cited problems due to short-term funding, fragmented and uncoordinated management, lack of legal protection, and a small and ageing pool of experts with the knowledge to both use and look after them. Marine biologist Wendy Nelson chaired the expert panel that prepared the report, and here she is in an interview on Our Changing World at the time that report came out. We think that if we had better coordination and better investment in this infrastructure on a long-term framework, there would be much better outcomes for New Zealand. This is a long-term activity, and it needs to have that kind of framework around it. We shouldn't actually have to be thinking about funding for a collection where there's specimens that were collected on Cook's first voyage to New Zealand, justifying the existence of those specimens year on year. Those collections are part of our heritage, but they're also part of our scientific um, history, and we need to be able to be building those collections into the future. So a better need for national coordination, a better need for... Uh, more certain long-term funding. That's right. And and a way of um, prioritising into the future. The area has been eroded for various reasons over quite an extended period, and we're now getting to the point where we have a critically small workforce, and that's an issue around funding and resourcing. New Zealand's National Museum, Te Papa Tongarewa, is home to four major natural history collections, vertebrates, which includes marine mammals as well as birds, plants, fossils and invertebrates, including many mollusks. Early last week, news broke of a proposed restructure at Te Papa that includes job cuts that experts say could seriously compromise the collections. Among the many concerned scientists I've spoken with is New Zealand paleontologist Trevor Worthy, who's based at Flinders University in Australia, he has a long connection with Te Papa and is responsible for tens of thousands of specimens lodged in the fossil collection. Most of them are fossil bones of animals from my work, looking at the uh, distribution through the quaternary of birds and reptiles and frogs from New Zealand, but also South Pacific. And the primary lot is the 
very large and internationally important collections from St. Bathans in central Otago, which are early Miocene in age and the only site that documents the earlier assembly of the New Zealand avian fauna. So what happens to these specimens once they're lodged with the, with the collection? The first primary purpose is, is to actually be vouchers for the, the assertions made and the descriptions or the publications that outline the results of the research. So if I say there is a moa species X present at a site, then anybody in the future can come along and verify or otherwise that statement or that assertion. So that's the fundamental point of science, that there has to be repeatability. Second, they form a resource for all future researchers, not just in New Zealand, but globally. So, for instance, moa have been at the forefront of a lot of paleontology research in New Zealand for 150 years, but they continue to be so. And what happens now is that people from all over the world will come and look at these things and for a major reason at the moment is ancient DNA research or using the molecules in the bones, something that wasn't even contemplated when most of the specimens were put in the collections. And then they can use these bones um, to understand the the patterns of diversity within a a family of animals or within a species across the landscape. And a good example was the kakapo, just very recently a publication in a a high-profile international journal that revealed that the ones we have today are just a mere fraction of the actual diversity there was 750 years ago through New Zealand. So I've just had a story on Our Changing World actually about that very research where it's very much a case of using things that for a long time no one had thought of using them that way. The technology wasn't available and now you can reveal entirely new things from those collections that you never imagined. It is a resource that sits there as long as it's properly curated and managed. It will sit there essentially forever and... It is undoubted that there will be new uses happening. I mean, radiocarbon dating, for instance, wasn't a possibility before the 1970s, and DNA analyses weren't contemplated before the 1990s, essentially. So who knows what the next one will be, but they provide a resource from which we can examine the evolutionary history of our biota and understand how it was assembled, when individual species actually formed and how our whole fauna relates to others around us. Now you mentioned curation and management. Can you tell me what it takes to curate and manage a collection like this and why that is important? The first thing about a collection is it needs to be stored in an accessible way, which means it has to be identified and catalogued and placed in a collection um, in a way which we can access the specimens and so usually a collection manager is able to do that. They they can identify the specimens they look at, then they can add the appropriate data that's associated with the specimen onto labels and into the computer and store the specimens in a way that will not damage or lead to minimal damage of them in the future. I mean, we can't guarantee there'll be no damage but we can try and minimise the damage and Every collection will have different 
requirements. For instance, mollusks have specific issues with the periostracum on the shells, and um, finer bone specimens might be have to be looked after in a different fashion to more robust ones. Then the collections themselves aren't a static thing. They they have to grow. I mean, we're in a a period of the most dramatic extinction event ever in, in the world at the moment. The biota around us is completely being altered beyond recognition and it should be a function of a national collection to be gaining specimens of that biota and preserving them so that in another hundred years time the people in our place now will be able to look back and see what it was that we had at this time and what it looked like. Blackbirds, for instance, or possums, have already evolved dramatically from when they were introduced 100 years ago, and they're going to do so more in the next 100 years. But if we haven't got the foresight in the collections to make adequate collections across the country so that this ongoing evolutionary process can be documented, then we're going to be looked upon from future workers as rather remiss in our ability to manage and make collections. So what is your understanding of how this proposed restructure at Te Papa might affect the management of the natural history collections there? Well, it appears to be an ongoing denigration, essentially, because we've already lost significant numbers of managers to the collections. In, in the 35 years I've been associated with the collections, we've lost approaching half of the actual workers, and by that I mean the collection managers and the curators who managed and made those collections. In the 1990s, we had experts in crustacea, echinoderms, mammals and insects. We don't have any of those now in Te Papa. And others, major collections like salenterates and all the various worms, and certainly the insects are not curated or managed by um, anybody with knowledge over at least 95% of those collections. So... The current understanding I have, I mean, I don't obviously know, but it's been suggested in the press that there might be three positions lost in natural history in the management zone and that these these will only leave one collection manager in botany and one in invertebrates and one in all of vertebrates. That would be reducing a skeleton crew to essentially an absolute critically skeleton crew that wouldn't be able to manage the collections. As a researcher, I should be able to ask the collection manager for what are the holdings for species X that has its left antennae present or something like that with some specific details. Now, if they remove all the collection managers who have any ability to identify a specimen, and certainly any ability to know anything about the anatomy of such specimens, then they are not going to be able to address such basic questions. There's been a suggestion, too, I understand, about moving the collections, either perhaps vesting them in another organisation. There's been talk of that with the fish collection, perhaps going to Niwa, is what I've heard the CEO of Te Papa mention. There's also talk about moving the collection from Wellington to Auckland. Yeah, there's, there's two parts to that. One is splitting the collection up. Now, now these collections are uh, the national um, collection for New Zealand's natural history. They are vested in the museum by an Act of Parliament to be looked after for the people of New Zealand. If you 
give away a part, a segment or one of those part collections to a CRI, you're essentially giving it to a private organisation. Those organisations have no act of parliament, no legal responsibility to maintain such collections. So they might take it today, but there'd be absolutely nothing stopping them throwing it out tomorrow. And that would be quite irresponsible, I think, by the people who are currently vested by an act of parliament to look after the national collections. Moving it off-site, I understand that's primarily because of issues of the location in Wellington being prone to earthquakes, which I know about. The current building is probably the most robust building in Wellington of any kind. It's built specifically so it won't be damaged. If you move the natural history collections, that would probably be minimally 500 truckloads or something that has to move somewhere. I find it inconceivable that 500-plus truckloads can move without damage to that collection. But moving it anyway is not, to me, such a a big problem. The the biggest problem is moving it and not maintaining the association of the curators and the collection managers with that collection. Because a curator who's fundamentally there for doing research to, to heighten the value of a collection needs to have immediate access to the collection to take researchers in and develop collaboration and explain it to them, um, to have the specimens at hand to actually do the research. The collection managers obviously have to be with the collection to manage it, to to bring in the new specimens, to catalogue the the new acquisitions and maintain the actual ones that are already there. The suggestion of moving it off-site to another presumably cheaper place to um, house, but somewhere where it's considered safe from a tectonic point of view, that isn't such a bad thing as long as those collection managers and curators go with the collection and and are there in that off-site location. And off-site locations are used by all museums in the world. At the end of 2015, the Royal Society Te Aparangi did a review of national taxonomic collections in New Zealand and they raised a number of concerns about a lack of coordinated management, underfunding, a loss of expertise. This highlights all of those issues again, doesn't it? Absolutely it does. I mean, we, we have our national, if we put that word in inverted commas, in a series of disjointed collections around the country. I mean, GNS holds the national one for fossils. Landcare holds one for arthropods and or insects mostly, and another one for botanical specimens. Niwa holds a major collection for marine specimens. And Tipapa clearly holds a major one with millions of specimens for across all groups. This raises a major issue of consultation because the natural history collections in Tipapa are being held vested for the interests of all New Zealanders. And those New Zealanders include all the researchers and, and all the general public who have any interest at all in those specimens. And here we have Tipapa undertaking major management changes and not seeking the, the advice or the concerns of most of the interested parties because these collections are primarily used by people outside Te Papa. They're only used by Te Papa for a tiny little bit of outreach activities in the form of display. Their major use is to maintain the underpinning of the biodiversity of New Zealand and for that 
we have all the universities, we have all the CROs and people all over the world who want recourse to those collections. And so those users, which include my group here in Flinders University in Australia, there's others in Adelaide University, probably most of the universities in Australia would be using Te Papa at one time or another. Plus definitely all those in New Zealand certainly are the other museums are and the CRIs are. So all of those people have an interest in what happens and how the collections are managed at Te Papa. And I think it's incredibly arrogant on the behalf of the current board and its director to consider they have no right to be involved in a consultation. Thanks, Trevor. That's paleontologist Trevor Worthy from Flinders University in Australia. And that's the show. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to get in touch, we are RNZ Science on Facebook and Twitter, and you can always find all our stuff, audio, photos, written features, links, contact details, on our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. I'm back next week, but for now it's good night from me, Alison Balance, Paul Marie. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.